Welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we'll be finishing up our reading of What is Marxism All About? It's worth reminding you this week that this book was written in the 70s and has been updated since then with some modernizing notes, but the last update was in 2013, and a lot happens in seven years. So you might notice in the chapter on fascism that it sounds a little bit out of date given some recent developments. I will just remind you of the age it's written. It is still relevant, it is just written from the viewpoint where it felt a need to argue for the idea that America is fascist, as opposed to taking it as a given. So with that said, let's get started and move on to our final reading of this book. Chapter 15. Democracy. The word democracy is Greek in origin. Literally, it means rule of the people. In a democracy, the control of society is supposed to be held not by the elite, but by everyone, equally. Democracy is often held up as the opposite of a dictatorship, in which a small group has the power. The US government portrays itself as a shining example of democracy. Children are taught from their first days of school that the US has a democratic government of the people, by the people, and for the people. Formal elections are held up as proof of this democracy. Every few years, voters can go to the polls and vote for a candidate for president, congress, governor, the state legislature, mayor, city council, and so on. This, the ruling class tells us, is democracy. But how democratic is the US really? Every candidate who wishes to have a chance of winning a major election needs a great deal of money. The majority of this money comes from Wall Street banks like Goldman Sachs, Citigroup, and National City. The media, which has a disproportionate influence on the decisions of voters, is privately owned by wealthy corporations as well. The majority of people in the society are members of the working class, yet only a tiny minority of the politicians are ever workers, especially workers of colour. Most major politicians come from the ruling class or are hired agents for that class. Both former President George W. Bush and former Vice President Dick Cheney were themselves wealthy capitalists, as are many members of Congress. The US economy is not operated in a democratic fashion. The workers and oppressed live under a dictatorship of the capitalists. If the owner of a factory wants to make machine guns instead of medical equipment, the workers at the plant have no recognized right to challenge that decision. If that same factory owner decides to close the plant down and lay off everybody, no one can legally stop the owner. Workers spend 40 hours or more a week under the dictatorship of the bosses, if they are lucky enough to have a job. The rest of the time, the workers purchase the bosses' electricity, eat the food the bosses make money on, sleep in the houses the banks own, and pay interest to the banks on credit cards. This situation makes it impossible for the capitalist government to operate above the class situation on the ground. Even if the politicians aren't tied directly to the capitalist class, it is impossible for them not to be pressured by the tremendous power and wealth of the bosses. The state and the government do not stand above society. They were set up in the beginning to protect the interests of the ruling class. Capitalist governments operate in the same way that capitalist economies run, as a dictatorship of the capitalist ruling class. Capitalist democracy acts as a democracy for the rich, and as a dictatorship against the workers and oppressed, and the procedures for elections are intended to allow capitalists to settle disputes among themselves. They do not empower workers with the democracy they need in their economic and political lives. 
Workers have been able to win some rights from the capitalist dictatorship, but these rights were won as concessions to workers' struggle. Continual struggle is necessary to prevent the capitalist dictatorship from rescinding the rights and freedoms won. Despite the insistence of politicians that elections represent real democracy, it's clear who really runs the show. The dictatorship of the capitalists can be seen in the trillions of dollars in handouts Presidents Bush and Obama have given to the banks, in the midst of the worst economic crisis for workers since the Great Depression. The continuation of troops in Iraq and the escalation of war in Afghanistan also demonstrate the limited impact elections can have under capitalist democracy. The US is about as democratic in its conduct internationally as it is at home. When the US invades nations, it insists that it is spreading democracy. But the US government has propped up brutal dictatorships all around the world when the interests of the ruling class of bankers and capitalists were threatened by a people's movement. In Chile, when the people democratically elected socialist Salvador Allende as president in the 1970s. The US sent in the CIA to overthrow him and then installed General Pinochet, a brutal dictator who massacred thousands of innocent people and suspended all civil liberties. All across the world, the democracy the US champions has been revealed as a cover for profit and exploitation. If a leader serves the interests of US bankers and capitalists, he is supported by the US government. If a leader opposes them, he is often labelled a dictator who must be removed in the capitalist government and the press. Real democracy would mean the working class majority rules. Real democracy would mean democratic control of the factories, mines, offices and farms, with directors elected by the workers from among the workers. The government would be an extension of this worker's control. It would coordinate and plan production to meet people's needs and prevent the capitalists from retaking power. The type and amount of items produced would be determined by societal needs, and not by the profit motive. Such a democracy can only exist after the capitalist ruling class is destroyed. Then real democracy, the democracy of the workers and oppressed, would exercise a dictatorship over the remnants of the former capitalist ruling class, until such a time that classes have withered away, along with the police, courts, and jails that protect them. Chapter 16. Reformism. Throughout the history of capitalism, the workers have had leaders who have guided the struggles that won the few basic rights we have today. The eight-hour workday, the right to unionize, and an end to child labor are just a few examples. We can generally divide the leaders who have fought for these things into two main groups, reformists and revolutionaries. A reformist tries to improve and reform the living conditions for the workers within the capitalist system. Tries to make the system more humane. While the revolutionary fights for the same reforms as part of a larger struggle to smash capitalism. It is this fear of outright revolution that has forced the ruling class and the state into making concessions to the legitimate demands of workers. The reformists often sincerely sympathize with the workers, but they do not understand the real cause of the exploitation and misery of the working class. They generally believe that the crimes of capitalism are just a tragic misunderstanding, and if only the bosses could be made to better realize the suffering they are causing, things could be better. Some believe that oppression comes just because the capitalists are greedy and take the burden off the system of capitalism. A reformist struggle is like putting a band-aid on a bullet wound. Reformists take the capitalist system for granted, believing that the system can be made more human, but that changing to a better system 
is impossible. Because of this outlook, they are forced to limit their demands to ones that don't challenge the boss's rule. Of course you need a raise, but if you ask for too much, how is the company going to stay in business? How many times have workers been force-fed this line as an excuse for making concessions to the boss? Ralph Nader is a typical reformist. After exposing in detail the criminal practices of the automotive and other industries, he proposed a mild legislative program to break up the monopolies and bring back a mythical age of small capitalism and fair competition that never existed. There are two reasons legislative reforms similar to Nader's proposals are unworkable. First, capitalism naturally tends towards monopoly, and monopolies have dominated the system since before World War I. Second, the monopolies have also dominated the politicians and now dominate them more than ever. Revolutionaries are the most militant fighters for improvements in the standard of living and for defending the rights of workers, the poor, and the oppressed under capitalism. Revolutionaries strive to lead the struggle in the trade unions, tenant groups, consumer groups, organizations of welfare recipients and unemployed workers, groups fighting higher food prices or housing foreclosures. While reformists are not the class enemy and often win supporters because of their legitimate struggle with the bosses, they are unable to consciously lead a struggle against capitalism because they themselves believe in it. By not showing the workers who their real enemy is, the reformist way of thinking helps capitalism to continue and to oppress the workers even more effectively. But revolutionaries lead these struggles with a view to enlarging them, deepening them, and with the aim of getting into a still greater struggle to overthrow the whole rotten oppressive system. Chapter 17. The Labor Bureaucracy Sometimes union leaders get paid as much as a boss. They wheel and deal with the politicians in the back rooms like a boss. When it comes time to call a strike or fight hard for the better contract, sometimes you think they are listening to the boss. But are the labor bureaucrats really the same as the bosses? The bureaucrats depend on the existence of the unions for their jobs, and so are forced to fight the bosses enough to keep unions intact. In fact, in order for the antagonisms of class society to be maintained, the existence of a labor bureaucracy is necessary. Bureaucrats are caught between the workers and the bosses. On the one hand, they want to keep the workers quiet, because the more organized the workers are against the bosses, the more they have the power to take away the bureaucrats' privileges. On the other hand, the bureaucrats cannot work completely for the bosses, because the bosses are generally opposed to the very existence of unions. Even buying the bureaucrats off costs the bosses money. The bosses' struggle against the unions, however, is as much about maintaining power as it is about immediate profit margins. The bureaucrats often take the boss's side. They may hold the union back, stop it from organizing new workers, and encourage workers to participate in less threatening political action. Much of the top leadership of the traditional AFL-CIO and change-to-win unions are unwilling to engage in a serious fight against the bosses. These leaders are often guilty of backroom deals with the boss that cut the workers out of the process and sell working-class interests short. Real rank-and-file leadership is still visible in some independent unions, and at the local level of some of the traditional unions. The United Electrical Radio and Machine Workers, International Longshore Workers Local 10, United Steel Workers Local 8751, Boston School Bus Drivers, and many others around the country offer a glimpse of what the labor movement could achieve if rank-and-file workers were empowered. The bureaucrats often support the bosses' imperialist wars. 
For the labor movement, there is a real danger of drawing national chauvinistic and protectionist conclusions from objective developments that divert the struggle away from the companies. The labor bureaucrats do nothing to avoid this crisis. In fact, they usually fall prey to it by building campaigns around American-made products and providing misleading information to workers about the benefits of supporting the anti-worker, pro-war Democratic Party. Many resources are diverted from the organizing of workers into unions and put into canvassing campaigns to support Democratic Party candidates. How did these class collaborationist labor bureaucrats get control of the unions, which were born out of struggles of workers for their basic rights? The main reason they were able to gain control was by winning support from the more privileged and skilled workers, who do not typically suffer from national or special oppressions. The bureaucrats, most of whom come from this more privileged section of the working class, have been bought off by the extra money and privileges that the ruling class had to offer, as a result of the super profits they had made from imperialism. They used the unions to defend these privileges before anything else. So, indirectly, the ruling class was able to buy off a part of the workers. Still, without the unions, the bureaucrats are nothing. With the growing economic crisis, the pressure is on them to act. And if they want to keep their jobs, they're going to have to fight the bosses. Because if they can't keep up with the struggle of the rank and file, they're going to be waiting on the employment lines like everybody else. Chapter 18. Fascism. Nowadays, when people speak of fascism, they speak of Nazis and jackboots, Mussolini and Franco. Classical fascism gained a mass base among the ruined middle classes in Europe after the First World War. When economic crisis, especially in Germany and Italy, drove millions to look for a strong leader. In Germany, an attempt to carry out a workers' revolution in 1918 had failed. Fascist demagogues, using anti-capitalist rhetoric, deflected mass anger into extreme nationalism and the scapegoating of minorities. They violently broke up workers' organizations, attacking communists and socialists. Eventually, the fascists got the support from big capital that they needed to take over the capitalist state, laying the basis for a second imperialist world war. Fascism is an extreme right-wing form of capitalist rule. Fascist ideologies still exist in different forms in most capitalist countries and in former colonies that are ruled by puppet regimes. In the US, fascism is closely linked to the ideology of white supremacy and shows itself in many institutions and cultural tendencies. Fascism celebrates the nation, the race, or the state as a community transcending all other loyalties. It emphasizes a myth of national rebirth after what it calls a period of decline. Read from today's pundits, a return to American values. Fascism celebrates unity and power through military strength. It can promote a sense of superiority, imperialist expansion, and genocide against communities of color. State-sanctioned violence against groups who hold opposing political views is also a manifestation of fascism. Thus, Hitler's Germany targeted communists as well as Jews. Fascism is a last resort of the ruling class, which uses it to smash all working-class organizations. In a pure fascist society, working-class political parties and trade unions are outlawed. Social legislation is overturned, civil liberties are rescinded, and democratic institutions are destroyed or subverted all in order to keep the capitalists in power. While those characteristics fulfill the technical definition of fascism, the meaning of words can change over time along with the experiences of a people. 
Therefore, today in the US, many black, Asian, and Latin workers, native peoples, immigrant workers, queer people, youth and students, feel that the capitalist state policies they struggle against represent fascism. Some Marxists contend that people of color in the US have always lived under a form of semi-fascism. US policies responsible for the genocide of native peoples, the enslavement of African people, the theft of half of Mexico, and the resulting oppression of the Chicanx people of the Southwest, the theft of Hawaii and Puerto Rico, the rise of the prison industrial complex, the passage of the Riot Act, domestic wiretapping and spying on political organizations, and other forms of severe state repression, either historic or current, have been likened to fascism by the impacted communities. Fascism's approach to politics is both populist in that it seeks to activate the people as a whole against perceived oppressors or enemies, and elitist, in that it treats the people's will as embodied in one leader, supported by big business interests, and from whom authority proceeds downward. Fascist tendencies can become stronger during periods of economic downturn, when middle-class elements, as well as workers, are hurting and more likely to buy into demagoguery against immigrants, queer people, and workers of colour, and place their hope in the false promises of renewal that fascism claims to bring. Workers, particularly white workers, have a responsibility to resist the capitalist policies some view as fascist, and to fight back against the potential resurgence of traditional fascist movements during times of economic crisis. Chapter 19. Revolution. The Bolshevik Revolution in 1917 smashed the Russian capitalist state and brought a workers' party to power for the first time in history. Later revolutions in China, Vietnam, Korea, Cuba, and elsewhere would smash the existing state in those countries and bring parties of workers and peasants to power. In each case, the Workers' Party, or Communist Party, was dedicated to the construction of socialism and the long-term transition to a fully communist society. Workers and students often question exactly what constitutes a revolution and what does not. The media often confuses the issue further by referring to any big change as a revolution, like the so-called Republican Revolution of 1994. A revolution is much more than a big event, however radical or life-changing that event may be. A genuine social revolution is represented by the overthrow of one class by another. This overthrow occurs when the contradictions and conflict inherent in existing social and economic relations become an intolerable burden on society's development. The revolution itself sets free new advanced social relations and marks the beginning of a whole new economic system. A genuine revolution is necessarily violent. The present revolutionary class of workers and oppressed would obviously prefer to have a peaceful revolution in which their friends and loved ones were not the target of violence by the state. History, however, has clearly demonstrated that no ruling class has ever given up its power without a violent fight. Existing class rule is based on the organized violence of the police and army. Workers and their allies must be prepared to defend themselves by any means necessary in the course of a revolutionary struggle. All changes of class rule in recorded history have come about by revolution. The Glorious Revolution in England and the French Revolution represented the process by which the capitalist class came to power in these two countries and smashed the old feudal state and feudal social relations. These revolutions laid the political basis for the rapid development of industry and technology. The capitalist class was the revolutionary class at this time, 
in its struggle against the vestiges of feudal power. Today, the capitalist class is the reactionary class that holds back the productive potential of workers as it oppresses them. The workers of the world make up the revolutionary class with the historic potential for the overthrow of the bourgeoisie. Not all revolutionary struggles are successful, and the international revolution has suffered severe setbacks following the defeat of the socialist bloc countries of the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe. Despite these temporary and serious setbacks, the working class has not ceded its historic mission of socialist revolution. The counter-revolutionaries in the former socialist bloc countries illustrate the need to continually struggle against the retrograde trends of bureaucratism and privilege, which separate the Communist Party and worker state from its natural base in the working class. These trends developed over time in the socialist bloc countries and preceded the eventual defeat of the revolution by domestic reaction allied with imperialism. Mao Zedong, the founding chairperson of the Communist Party of China, foresaw this possibility in China and sought to head it off by launching the Great Proletarian Cultural Revolution in 1966. The Cultural Revolution was a recognition of the need for continual revolution in all spheres of society, political, economic, and cultural. The theory of continual revolution explicitly acknowledges that the process of socialist revolution within a particular country does not end at the exact moment workers smash the old state and establish a revolutionary state in its place. Socialist revolution represents the conquering of state power by the exploited masses for the first time in history. All previous revolutions have transferred power from one small ruling class of exploiters to another class of exploiters. Modern technology lays the basis for material abundance and provides the opportunity for the producers of wealth to run society. The working class cannot rely on the old state mechanisms developed to serve capitalism in its revolutionary struggle. Elections, for example, may be a barometer of how the masses feel, but they cannot, in and of themselves, bring workers to power. Workers must create their own instruments of power to carry through the revolution. The working class needs a party which understands its role in history and is organized under the centralized leadership of workers and the oppressed to assist in the development of these instruments of power. This party must come from and be embedded in the exploited masses so that it can move decisively when a revolutionary situation presents itself. Only through the leadership of such a communist party can the working class smash the old capitalist state and replace it with a revolutionary dictatorship based on workers' power. The final victory of workers' revolution throughout the entire world will definitively end the basis for all exploitation. Chapter 20. Socialism. Socialism is a system in which the working class controls the means of production and the distribution and exchange of goods. A socialist society is a society ruled not by the elite, but by the masses of people. Socialism takes the ownership of the means of production away from the capitalist class and places it in the hands of the working class, or society as a whole. The factories, the giant farms, the banking system, the media, transportation, healthcare, communications, and education are no longer run on the basis of advancing profits. Instead, they are run on the basis of fulfilling human needs. Instead of unaccountable CEOs and capitalists having control of these commanding heights of the economy, the people will maintain control through democratic bodies. Socialism organizes the means of producing according to a plan based on utilizing the available resources to meet the needs of society. This plan unfetters the productive potential of labor, allowing the state to provide basic necessities at no cost to the individual, 
Socialism is thus able to provide healthcare, education, food, housing, and recreation to every person. Increasing production under socialism means more shared wealth for all. Under capitalism, however, increased production leads to crises. Production periodically outstrips consumption because workers' wages are under constant downward pressure from the bosses, who must continually raise productivity and shed workers in order to compete and make profit. The result is overproduction, such as in the housing market, where millions of homes stand vacant because the banks and developers can't sell them at a profit. At the same time, millions of families are in crisis for lack of decent, affordable housing. Socialism allows for the elimination of unemployment, since a reserve army of labour is no longer needed to intensify competition among workers and drive wages down. Technology will no longer be used as a pretext to lay off workers and increase exploitation, but will be used to free workers from monotonous and dangerous work. As the need for production workers decreases with new technology, a socialist society can provide more employment and training in areas of human development like health, education, culture and recreation, as well as science and technology to benefit people and the environment. Without capitalist crises, there will be no drastic budget cuts in these areas, but instead, dynamic growth. Socialism allows the working class, the new rulers of society, to begin to beat down the old forces of oppression. Racism, sexism, homophobia, and all other discriminatory ideologies used by the ruling class to justify economic, political, social, and cultural inequality will be eliminated as society progresses down the road of socialism. Chapter 21. Socialist Countries Socialism, a system in which the working class takes control of the means of production and the distribution and exchange of goods, is not just a fantasy, pipe dream, utopian vision, or good idea. In fact, even though socialism was generally constructed despite a history of underdevelopment and imperialist intervention, the new economic system has proven itself to be far superior to capitalism. Prior to the 1917 Bolshevik Revolution, for example, Russia and the surrounding countries which eventually made up the Soviet Union were impoverished. Famine and starvation were common. Women were exploited in the virtual captivity of their homes, as well as in the factories and fields. Workers labored long hours for very little pay. Peasants worked all summer growing and harvesting crops, only to be forced to turn them over to the land-owning nobility at the end of the season, leaving them barely enough to survive the winter. Education was unheard of for the vast majority of the population, and illiteracy was rampant. But the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917 laid the foundation for the formation of the Soviet Union, and efforts to construct socialism. A new government, led by the Communist Party, and drawing power from councils of workers, peasants and soldiers, was established. The workplace was democratized. This new worker state became an inspiration to the workers and oppressed all around the world. Within a short period of time, the Soviet Union was able to industrialize a backward country, get rid of landlords and collectivize agriculture, and provide free and universal healthcare and education to all. No one can forget, of course, the Soviet Union's most significant contribution to humanity. The military defeat of the invading armies of Nazi Germany during World War II. This war against fascism cost the Soviet Union tens of millions of lives and destroyed much of its industry. The victory over fascism was followed by the Cold War, which further weakened the Soviet bloc. Workers in China, Korea, Vietnam, Cuba, Eastern Europe, and other parts of the world were inspired by socialism's ability to build up the forces of production. 
Over time, the ruling classes were overturned in these countries, and revolutionary governments were established that adopted socialist programs to meet the material needs of the masses. The international working class was dealt a major setback with the defeat of the socialist bloc countries of Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union from 1989 to 1991. Workers in the former socialist bloc countries were extremely affected, as infant mortality increased precipitously, the quality of education and healthcare was drastically reduced, and social ills such as drug abuse were reintroduced into society for the first time in decades. However, the counter-revolutions that swept the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, while they affected other socialist countries, did not necessarily bring them down. Socialist Cuba has managed to survive the horrendous attacks from the US, only 90 miles south of the Florida coast of the US. Cuba has the highest life expectancy in Latin America and the Caribbean, as well as the highest literacy rate. Cuba's infant mortality rate is lower than that of the US. Cuba sends more medical aid abroad than any country on Earth. Cuba even provides medical training for people around the world, where they can come and be taught medicine for free on the condition that they use their knowledge to provide care in their home communities to people who have not been able to obtain it. The Democratic People's Republic of Korea also stands tall as an example of a country that has resisted imperialist aggression and instituted socialist measures. The DPRK has provided universal education, housing, healthcare, and literacy for its population. It has stood up to intense US interference and the threat of invasion by tens of thousands of US troops right on its border. Communist parties still retain their monopoly on power in China and Vietnam, following the revolutions in those two countries. Decades of risky market experimentation, however, have allowed the growth of capitalist class and placed China's socialist system in a precarious position. At the same time, the working class in China has also grown enormously, Along with the development of the means of production, US imperialism tries to undermine the Chinese Communist Party because it is the main organized political force in China that protects the remaining elements of that country's socialist system. A full counter-revolution in China and the removal of the CPC from power would have devastating consequences for the well-being of China's 1 billion plus workers and farmers. The corporate media, which is owned by the very people Marxists seek to overthrow, would like workers to believe that the defeat of socialism of the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe represents a failure of Marxism. A closer analysis of history, however, demonstrates that it was the intense economic, political, and military pressures on these countries from imperialism that made them vulnerable. While the World Revolution has experienced a temporary setback, the advances made by countries engaged in building socialism remain a source of inspiration to the worldwide working class and the oppressed nations. Chapter 22. Communism. The latest scientific view is that humans first evolved from earlier primates more than 200,000 years ago in Africa. Since then, we have spread over the whole world. The state first appeared in a few places on the globe about 6,000 years ago. Before that, and continuing in many parts of the world up until recent times, there was a very long period of human development known to Marxists as primitive communism, where people existed without private property or the governments and laws that protect propertied classes. They lived in small groups and shared what little they had. This period is described as primitive because modern technology and science did not exist, and communist because there were no economic classes. As techniques improved, the eventual accumulation of surpluses lent itself to the development of classes. 
the development of classes lent itself to class conflict. The privileged classes sought to secure their rule permanently, and developed state-like structures with laws protecting the ownership of property and armed organizations to enforce those laws. In today's world of multi-billionaires and paupers, where there are huge standing armies and police agencies, the state has grown to grotesque proportions. Once this parasitic and outmoded ruling class has been defeated, the technology available even now will have laid the basis for society to start transitioning through the stages of socialism, until it reaches a modern form of communism, based on abundance instead of scarcity. The science of Marxism predicts that as the capitalist states are permanently defeated worldwide and revolutionary worker states replace them and take up the task of building socialism, the very existence of the state will become unnecessary and the state will start to wither away. At this point, human beings will live in a stateless society without classes, but with the advantages of modern science and technology. This is communism, the final goal of Marxist-Leninists. Communists fight for a world without poverty, racism, sexism, homophobia, or exploitation of any kind. Revolutionaries will continue to press harder and harder until this final goal is achieved, and a world without oppression is the order of the day. So this concludes our third and final reading of What is Marxism All About? Now that we've finished this book, we'll be moving on to a new reading next week. We'll be reading Imperialism, the Highest Stage of Capitalism by Vladimir Lenin. This is one I've heard recommended as a way to understand what imperialism means, especially in a modern context. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or suggestions, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or contact the show on Twitter, at leftistreading. This podcast is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. Check out abnormalmapping.com to find lots of other leftist podcasts there about movies, books, video games, and anime. The intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find it and more of his work at soundimage.org. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening, and keep reading. <laughs>